0: Father, it's an immense privilege to gather as your people and we ask you to open our eyes that we might see your word marvel at the good news of Jesus and be those whose hearts and minds are renewed that we might continue to trust in him and we ask it for his sake, for his glory, amen. Albert Speer was one of Hitler's in a circle. He was the technological genius behind the Nazi's factories and concentration camps during World War II. He was Berlin's building inspector and was personally responsible for dispossessing millions of Jews from their homes. Immediately after the war, Speer was among 24 major war criminals arrested and charged with the crimes of the Nazi regime at Nuremberg and he was found guilty of war crimes and crimes against humanity, principally for the use of slave labor, and narrowly avoided a death sentence. He served for 20 years in Berlin's infamous Spandau prison. And I came to know of this because my father, who was in the British Army, was personally responsible for the guard group that guarded him, and my father met him on a number of occasions. In the trial at Nuremberg, and in the two autobiographies that he wrote, he confessed his guilt. And for years afterwards, he believed he could not find forgiveness. In an interview with ABC, he said this, I served for 20 years, and I could be entitled to have a clear conscience after serving my punishments. But I don't. I cannot. Get rid of my guilty conscience. The interviewer pressed him. You really don't think that you will be able to clear your conscience? He said, no, I do not believe that will be possible for me. He was released in October 1966. And 15 years later, in 1981, died of a stroke. Shortly after his death, Chuck Colson, the American Christian author, who himself had spent time in prison for perjury in the Watergate affair, said this of Albert Speer. For 35 years, Speer had accepted full responsibility for his crime. His writings were filled with contrition and warnings to others to avoid his moral sin. He desperately sought expiation, but to no avail. I wanted to write to Spear and tell him of Jesus and the forgiveness he brings. But there wasn't time. He died shortly after his final interview. I wonder if there's anyone here this morning like Albert Spear. You know what you've done. It's on your conscience. Seared into your memory, and yet you feel you can't be forgiven by God. I guess the question is what do we have to do? Where is it that we can find this forgiveness, this expiation to cleanse our consciences and make us ready to meet God on the day of judgment? Well, we couldn't be in a better place, Psalm 32, Augustine's favorite psalm, so much so that he had it inscribed on his bedside so that he could meditate on it every morning and every night as he woke up. He wrote, the beginning of knowledge is to know oneself a sinner. Luther loves this psalm. In fact, he calls it a Pauline psalm. This psalm is almost the gospel, which is why it's picked up in that reading we had from Wendy earlier on in Romans 4. Psalm 32 takes us to the very heart of the gospel, the very epicenter of what Jesus has done. It's the second penitential psalm. The other is Psalm 51, and it's a song of raw emotion as this sinner comes before God with honest contrition, owning what he's done and crying out to God's for forgiveness. But it's not just his testimony, the testimony of a broken man, David. There's a little word that keeps coming up in Psalm 32. Did you notice it's maskel? And that word in the Hebrew maskel really means teaching or instruction. So this morning, it's as if we're handing the mic to David as he, as he gives his testimony, rather like we've just had with our missionaries from Thailand's but it's not just that he's giving his testimony about what he's discovers. This is not just a penitential psalm. It's a psalm of instruction. Because as David tells us what he encounters, the idea is that we learn how we should follow him and find the same blessing he found. The application is not to go, Wow, David, we're so happy that you found that. Rather, it's to go, Wow, I need that too. And I'm going to follow David to find this great blessing for myself. So there are three points that I've, I've put on our sheets here. And here's the first. It is forgiveness, verses 1 to 2. Because the psalm opens on a note of jubilant confidence. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not imputes iniquity and in whose spirits there is no deceit the word blessed here is in the plural literally blessednesses this is not a minor thing this is massive this privilege is the biggest privilege on planet earth The word blessing here doesn't really mean happy. It's much more big than that. It means to be envied or to be congratulated. The person who finds this thing is the luckiest person on the face of the earth. Psalm 32 is actually the only time after Psalm 1 where a psalm has opened like this. Michael preached the other day on Psalm 1, blessed is the man who… And the answer was, who obeyed the law? Psalm 32 is strange. Now we're learning, blessed is the man who's broken the law, but nevertheless found the forgiveness of God. This is our song. This is a sinner's song. It's got your name written on it. And there's nothing sentimental or trite. This song confronts us with our guilt. It forces us to take a long, hard look in the mirror. It's a painful song, but nevertheless, a glorious song as we move from the guilt of our sin to the glory of forgiveness. David uses three words of sin. First, transgression. The word there implies a going away, or a a departure from, or a rebellion against. This is what makes sin so dreadful. It's not that in sin you let yourself down, or you let your kids down, or hurt others. Sin is rebellion against God. When we sin, we slam the door in God's face. Worse, every time we sin, we spit. In God's face. Psalm 32 is the other Psalm 51. What's David doing? Is he thinking back to the affair or the murder of Uriah or the attempted cover-up or was it the collapse of the kingdom? Listen to this by Alexander McLaren, the commentator. You don't understand the gravity of the most trivial wrong acts when you think of it as a sin against the order of nature or against the law written on your heart or as a breach of the Constitution, you've not gone to the bottom of the blackness until you see that sin is a flat rebellion against God. Every time I sin, I'm slamming the door in God's face slapping God in the face, spitting at God in His face, transgression. The second word is sin. Sin here in the original Hebrew involves a missing of the mark, rather like my darts down in the basement, or archery it's borrowed from that world. It's a missing of the mark. It's a failure to hit targets. It is that we can't be perfectly righteous. We cannot do it every time we miss the mark of God's law. And the third word is iniquity. This word in the Hebrew involves corruption or a a crookedness or or a twistedness. We are perverted, compromised, sullied, dirtied. And each of these words gives us a a composite doctrine of sin. If the first word transgression describes my rebellion against God, the second word sin is my relationship of rebellion to His law, and the third word iniquity is my relationship of rebellion in relation to myself. If the first word, transgression, implies that I deliberately err through my own deliberate fault, the second word implies a negligence or weakness. But taken together, we have a very dark picture of who we are, which the Book of Common Prayer describes in the Confession. Listen to this. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have, erred and way, uh, we have erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against thy holy laws. We have left undone those things that we ought to have done and have done those things we ought not to have done, and there is no health in us. So there's the doctrine of sin, but the psalm doesn't end there because what David now does is he moves from our sin to the solution, if you like, from our guilt to the atoning work of God, as now three words follow of what God has provided. First, we are forgiven. Second, our sins are covered. And third... They are not counted against us. That word forgiven literally means lifted off. And the picture is of a terrible burden being taken away. I think it was a year ago in Miami Beach. Do you remember this when a, a condominium uh, I think collapsed? And various people were caught under the rubble, 16 feet down, and they they couldn't get out and their faces were trapped and the rescue teams went down and they had to cut through with diamond um, chains and stuff like that and the cutting went through and the breakthrough came and the chainsaws cut through the rubble and eventually they were lifted out as the as the burden was lifted off that's the picture here the second word is covered it's taken straight from leviticus 16 and the annual day of atonements In the most holy place was the Ark of the Covenant, it contained the Ten Commandments, it stood as a permanent reminder of the perfection of God, on top was the golden lid, which was the mercy seat where the blood was taken to atone for sin. And as the blood was poured on that golden lid over the perfection of God's law, the picture was your sin is covered by the blood in the atoning acts. And the third word is actually borrowed not from the temple, but from the accountant's office, sin not counted against us. For what happens at the cross is a double exchange as Jesus takes all of our guilt and then gives us all of His righteousness. It's a double imputation. He takes what is mine and He gives me what is His, and that's why Luther can talk about this as an alien righteousness. Today, if you're trusting in Jesus Christ, you have a perfection, a righteousness that you could never attain here on planet earth. It's an alien righteousness that has been credited into your accounts. It's been transferred into you through Jesus as he took all of your guilt and shame and then gave you his perfection for free. There's an art gallery in a place called the Wirral in Liverpool in England, and it's called the Lady Lever Art Gallery. It's not particularly interesting, apart from for one piece of art and I went there once just to see this particular painting. It's a painting uh, by the Victorian artist Holman Hunt, and it's entitled The Scapegoat, taken from Leviticus 16 and the annual Day of Atonement. You can Google it later on, Scapegoat by Holman Hunt, and if you do that, even online, you'll be struck by the vivid details, the symbolism, it's a portrait of a forlorn goat uh, with his horns wrapped in red cloth. And he stands alone on the salted shores of the Dead Sea. And then all around him is a desolate landscape. There's a, a skull to the left and an animal's skeleton to the right. And this moving portrait depicts for us the scapegoat from Leviticus 16 on whose head was placed All of the sins of all of the people and on the annual day of atonement you'd have stood there and you would have watched as the transfer took place the sins placed on the head of the goats and then you would have watched as a man appointed took that goat outside the camp and you would have watched as the goat was led away and you would have thought to yourself there goes my sin and it would have got smaller and smaller. You would have got your binoculars out and watched it as it disappeared on the horizon. Going, going, gone, gone forever. And that's what happened at the cross. As Jesus died at Calvary, we watch our sins <laughs> going, going gone. I don't know who you are or what you've done, but whoever you are, wherever you've been, whatever you've done, no matter how heinous, vile, or disgusting, gone. Through the saving death of Jesus, the scapegoats, He's taken them away forever. Well, there's our first point. It's extraordinary, verses 1 to 2. Forgiveness. But interestingly, the psalm that that could end there doesn't, because there's something else and I'm calling it verse 3 to 7, testimony. And the reason the psalm can't end in verse 2 is because even though we know the glory of the gospel, we struggle to be honest to God about our sin. We're tempted to think of ourselves as better than we are and to cover up our sin. We don't trust grace. And that was David's problem, which is why we are handing him the microphone now as he gives his testimony to how it was that he came to the gospel the hard way. There's a repetition actually of the word cover in verse 1 and 5. And it's very striking because there are two ways to live. There are two ways to go. It's black or white and A or B. Here's the deal. Either we can try to cover up our own sin ourselves, or we can turn to God's and allow Him to cover our sins through atonement. Which way will you go? Will you try to cover up your sin yourself? or allow God to do that through the blood of Christ at the cross? Because David tried to do the first. Let's see how he got on. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as in the heat of the summer. David tried to pretend I'm not that bad." But the denial didn't work. It was counterproductive, spiritually speaking. It left him exhausted and his conscience even more burdened. The picture in verse 3 is of deep mental anguish, a seared conscience, psychosomatic torments and physical pain as he describes the trauma of this cover-up. But The pictures are awful. His bones were wasting away, uh, the phrases borrowed from clothes wearing thin. His strength was dried up as in the summer, like a, like a parched man with no water in the Sahara deserts. The blistering sun was coming down, and it was relentless as day and night, it went on and on, this guilt, this terror. David was like a man, I suppose, who walks into the doctor's office. And he says to the cardiologist, I'm fine. I don't need your help. And the cardiologist says, well, I've got the blood results. We've done the x-ray and the scan and you need a triple heart bypass. No, says the patient, I'm fine. No, says the cardiologist, unless you get the surgery, in my view, You'll be dead this time next month. Yet, people hate being honest to God. George Bernard Shaw once said this I love Christianity, but I hate Christianity. And he was in a meeting where the gospel was being explained like this, and he stormed out saying, I will pay my own debts because we hate to be saved by charity. David's trying the cover-up. Nathan the prophet has already told him the truth. The lights have been turned on, full exposure, and it leads to repentance. But verse 4, Selah. It's a strange word, that word, Selah. It's actually a note to the music director, to Nancy, as we sing this song together. And as we sing this psalm, as we come to this truth, Selah. It literally means stop. Pause. Think about it. Meditate on this. Learn the lesson from David. Stop trying to cover up your sin. Come to Christ for forgiveness. Because everything changes now in verse 5. And if your Bible is open, have a look at verse 5. It's the central verse. It's the pivotal verse. And it's the longest verse. And it's the longest verse for a reason, because it's the most important verse, it's the teaching point, it's the application, it's the truth. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity, and I didn't hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. There's a long build-up, I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity and I didn't hide and I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and the answer from heaven is so simple, you forgave the guilt. We've talked about Lady Macbeth but she's one of the most tragic figures, she's involved in the cover-up, the murder of Duncan, a controlling and manipulative ice queen. She's involved in the death of Duncan. And one of the most tragic moments in the whole play, which really is the tragedy of Macbeth, is when she realizes she can't atone for her sin. And if you know the play, she utters, what's done cannot be undone. And then probably one of the most awful lines in the whole of Shakespeare, all the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this little hand. The hand that was involved in the murder cannot be sweetened. Contrast that, tortured conscious then, with the joy of the hymn writer, listen to this, my sin, O the bliss of that glorious thought, my sin not in part but in whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. This forgiveness is comprehensive, this this forgiveness is immediate. Note the connection, I acknowledged, and then I am forgiven. There's no gap, no pause, there's no conditions. This man does not have to say 100 Hail Marys or 1,000 Our Fathers he doesn't have to give alms or go to the confessional or go to Lourdes or go to Mecca or take mass or climb the Sancta Scala in Rome. He doesn't have to become a member of the church or join a small group or give to the church. It's the thief on the cross, full forgiveness. With me in paradise, no delay, no conditions, no hesitation. God is ready and willing and yearning to forgive us, every one of us, like that today. But this is not just one man's personal testimony, but a a lessons learned example for the whole of the church. So what David now does in verse 6 is to turn from his own story To how we all ought to apply this extraordinary truth. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely, in a flood of great waters, they will not reach him. What do you think it means to be godly? To be godly, does it mean to be Mr. Good, Mr. Perfect? is godliness saying i want you to know how how good i am i am a walking talking mr perfects no to be godly means to be honest to god to be godly means to trust god to be godly means to trust in the gospel of grace the godly person is not walking around saying i'm amazing The godly person is saying, I'm a failure, but I trust in the gospel of his amazing grace. Let everyone who is godly pray to you for forgiveness at a time when you may be found. Because this is the age of amnesty, this is the moment of salvation. Now God can be found. For His Son has died at Calvary to take away the guilt of your sin. Now is the time for Christ to forgive us. Now is the moment when we can be embraced in the arms of the Father who loves you and who has come to save you from the eternal punishment of hell now is the time he can be found but there will be a time when his saving grace cannot be found on the day of judgments in eternity future when the waters rise the tsunami of judgment is coming the appeal of the psalm is to turn to christ to trust in him now with urgency while the gospel can save you through the merits of His saving grace. Probably one of the most famous preachers ever, he happens to be from Wales, was Martin Lloyd-Jones. You can buy his books, even listen to his sermons still, an amazing preacher of the gospel. And he was once asked, what would your last word to the world be at your deathbed? Do you know what he said? He said, I would say, flee the wrath to come. And the way we do that, ironically, is running from God's judgments to God's mercy. We run from God to God, from the anger of Christ <laughs> to the mercy of Christ. Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly while the nearer waters roll, while the tempest still is high. Hide me, O my Saviour, hide, till the storm of life is past, safe into the haven guides, O receive my soul at last." Other refuge have I none, hangs my helpless soul on thee. Leave or leave me not alone, still support and comfort me. All my trust on thee is stayed, all my help from thee I bring. Cover my defenseless heads with the shadow of thy wing. Full forgiveness, following an open confession. It's what the Apostle John says. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us, but if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness because heaven will not be populated by good people but by forgiven people and that's difference. And if you're not a Christian. Today is the day of amnesty and forgiveness. Come to Christ. And if we are Christian, hold on to this amazing gospel. You are one of the most privileged people on the face of the earth. Blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven. Have a look at verse 8. It's odds. Because now what happens is God himself intervenes in the song. David's done his testimony and David has told his story and he's done the Billy Graham invitation that we should all come up to the front and turn to this God. And then in verse 8, God himself intervenes as if to sign on the dotted line with his own words. I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Verse 9, do not be as the horse or the mule which have no understanding, whose trappings include a bit and bridle to hold them in check, otherwise they will not come near to you. God is speaking now. He's instructing us in the way that we should go, and the you in verse 9 is plural. The picture is borrowed from the comedy section. Here is a a donkey or or, or a mule, and we're we're trying to yank The animal, they say never work with children or animals, we're trying to yank the animal. It's a tug of war as the animal wants to go that way. We're trying to pull the animal against its will with the bit and the bridle. God is saying, don't be like that because I love you and I care about you. And the picture is borrowed from a father with his son. I will instruct you. The picture is of a a father holding the hand of his little toddler his little three-year-olds. I will hold you and I love you and I care about you and I'll watch out for you. I'll provide for you and I will protect you. God is saying, trust me. For the only place of safety is being honest to God and led by this God of grace who provides. We better turn then to the Heidelberg Catechism. Let me test you. Question two. What do you need to know in order to live and die in the joy of the comfort of the gospel? Answer first, how great my sin and misery is. And second, how I am delivered from all my sin and misery. Third, how I am to be thankful to God for such a deliverance. So the psalmist concludes in verse 7 with joy and confidence. It's emphatic. You're my hiding place. Wouldn't that be a great title for a book by Cory Tamboon? He's not saved by the skin of his teeth, It's a mighty triumph. You surround me with the shouts of deliverance. And we look back to the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a lessons learned psalm. Forgiveness, testimony, and verse 8 to 11, invitation. As in verse 10, it ends with a Proverbs-like statement of wisdom. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. But the steadfast love of the Lord surrounds the one who trusts in him. Be glad. Rejoice. Shout for joy, you upright in heart. Ours is a merciless cancel culture. And the deal is, if you mess up in your past and they find out, you're cancelled. doesn't matter who you are, Prince Andrew, Donald Trump, anyone. If you mess up in your past the terms and conditions of this culture, you're cancelled, depersoned, gone, finished, forever. How beautiful is the kingdom of God. How amazing is the grace of Jesus Christ. Whoever you are, Prince Andrew, Donald Trump, whatever you've done, Albert Speer, full forgiveness forever. Not only as our guilt is taken away, but the righteousness of Christ given to us, the application, rejoice. And as I finish, let's ensure that not only is this applied to me personally, but that this becomes true of our church culture. We don't want to be a culture of Pharisees, Mr. Good. Little Mr. Perfect, I'm not. We want to be a church culture, a hospital of sinners where we can be honest about our failures as fathers and mothers and children, whoever we are, and a culture of saving and amazing grace. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose deceit there is no sin.